1: wherever you
2: get your podcasts.
3: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.
4: Hi, Molly. Hi, Seth. Well, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? It's gorgeous. Yeah. Well, do you ever see
1: such a sunny day, actually? Yes, and actually so have you. This is California, so that would be yesterday.
4: Yeah, but well, well, that was then. This is now. Look, I hear that temperatures might dip tonight.
1: Where did you hear that?
4: You know, when the sun sets. I heard it on the forecast, actually.
1: That the temperatures will dip when the sun sets? Yeah. Okay, that may happen. You never know, though. Temperatures could go up when there's no sun.
4: Well, it's true. You never know. I mean, it could even rain tomorrow. Could
1: do. Could rain. Probably won't rain.
4: Maybe maybe even a storm. I mean, sometimes the monsoons come early. Not here, but somewhere. We might see hail. It was hail just the other day
1: somewhere. Was someone hailing a cab? Uh, It could be dust devils. Okay, you know what? Let's turn on the weather forecast and see what it actually will be for tomorrow. (laughs)
5: And the weather forecast for Northern California for tomorrow, same as today. Fog in the morning with mid-morning clearings, sunny skies, and temperatures reaching 70 degrees. Another beautiful day in Paris.
4: Okay, around these parts, you wait a while, and, well, actually, the weather doesn't change very much. But that's not the case everywhere. Weather can be the subject of idle talk or serious news. A cold front clashing with a wet warm front can create deadly storms suddenly in just an afternoon.
1: We'll examine the sanity of a man who actually runs towards these storms, not away from them, and also ask whether climate change is bringing about more frequent or more severe weather phenomena. I'm Molly Bentley.
4: I'm Seth Shostak, and on Big Picture Science, Wither the Weather.
1: Growing up in the Midwest, this is all it took for everyone to drop their frisbees and their summer novels and their lemonade and head for the basement. It still gives me chills to hear that sound.
4: In Virginia, Molly, we didn't have tornadoes, but we did have hurricanes. In fact, we still do.
5: A hurricane warning continues
3: for all of Atlantic coastal waters, including Albemarle and Pay sounds at 6
4: a.m. Eastern... Those daylight. storm warnings saved lives, so it's hard to fathom that there was a time, even relatively recently, when weathermen were forbidden to broadcast warnings about severe tornadoes and hurricanes.
1: Meteorologist Mike Smith doesn't just talk about the weather. He does something about it. The founder of Weather Data, his company uses the latest technology to track and forecast the weather so he can warn people. But just a little more than a half century ago, he wouldn't have been allowed to sound the alarm. Luckily, all that's changed. Mike Smith is the author of Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather.
6: Since the 1880s, there had been a concern by what was then called the Weather Bureau that broadcasting tornado warnings would cause panic and more deaths than the tornado itself. Now, today, we know that's silly and that tornado warnings save over a 1,000 lives a year.
4: So uh, this was for tornadoes. Now, tornadoes are very localized events compared to hurricanes, which can extend over, what, hundreds of miles. Was there any injunction against warning against hurricanes?
6: Yes. Back in the late 1880s and early 1900s, the Weather Bureau also forbade warnings of hurricanes. And that led directly to the disaster in Galveston, Texas in 1900, when a Category 4 hurricane hit the city without warning and killed between 8 and 10,000 people. And when I say without warning, the Cuban Weather Bureau had warned of the hurricane, had said it was headed to Texas, and the Weather Bureau was so anxious to block hurricane warnings that they blocked the telegraph line coming in from Cuba so the hurricane warnings the Cuban Weather Bureau issued could not be received in the United States. Do do you have any
4: estimate of how many lives that cost, that policy there, in that particular case?
6: It's hard to know, because in those days, we didn't have the infrastructure to, say, evacuate Galveston. But there's no question that it cost at least hundreds and maybe thousands of lives, because there were still trains coming into Galveston during the hurricane, and those trains were washed off bridges full of passengers into the water.
4: So let me summarize the situation at the beginning of the 20th century, Mike. And that was no tornado warnings, no hurricane warnings. A big hurricane hits Galveston, Texas. Up to 10,000 people die. Presumably, this policy of not giving warnings on hurricanes was quickly changed.
6: No, it was not. The Weather Bureau still was adamantly against giving warnings of hurricanes. Gradually, in the 1940s, what we think of as today's hurricane warnings came into being and those improved in the 1950s and 60s but then the huge improvement in hurricane warnings came in the 70s and 80s when we had satellite coverage of the oceans but the ban on tornado warnings continued all the way into the 1950s.
4: Wasn't there somebody by the name of Joe Oddsley involved here?
6: Yes there was. Joe was the Navy's meteorologist at both Iwo Jima and Okinawa during World War II and after he got out of the Navy and went into the Weather Bureau, in 1948 he issued a tornado warning, at least how we would look at a tornado warning today, when he was stationed in Sioux City, Iowa. However, the Weather Bureau did not want to be in the tornado warning business and his supervisor pulled him into the office the next day told him never to do it again, to cover up that he had issued a tornado warning, and hope that the regional headquarters would never hear about it so there would be no more repercussions. The fact that Joe's tornado warning in Sioux City was correct didn't matter. The Weather Bureau didn't want to be in the tornado warning business. But then, in 1957, as a large tornado was approaching densely populated South Kansas City, Joe issued a tornado warning that went to the media and was widely disseminated. Now, he thought he was going to be fired the next day, but it turned out that the media and the public loved the idea of tornado warnings. People believed Joe's warning saved lives, and so the Weather Bureau was in the tornado warning business, whether it wanted to be or not. And it wasn't the President of the United States, it wasn't Congress, it wasn't even the head of the Weather Bureau that caused that change. It was one courageous meteorologist in Kansas City. One of the earliest recordings that we have of someone trying to warn of a tornado was in Wichita Falls, Texas, back in the 1960s. The
0: winds have picked up considerably in the last few minutes. A
6: heavy TV camera, and boy TV cameras were not portable in those days, was drug outdoors, and the television personality is outside describing a funnel cloud. In
2: 1969, the funnel cloud or the extreme turbulence is
6: moving eastward, all interests in that area of the sea. So in the early days of television, trying to even get a tornado warning on the air was quite a challenge.
4: 1957. Yes. There, there, was a, there was a tornado that passed through your hometown in that year. You weren't terribly old then. I understand that this event was seminal in igniting your interest in the weather.
6: Absolutely. I saw Joe's warning on television... And the next day, my mother drove me through the core of the devastated area. This was the 1% of tornadoes that is F5 intensity. 44 people were killed. My kindergarten was destroyed. And I looked around, and I said to myself, anything that could do all this had to be pretty interesting. And from that day on, I've known I wanted to be a meteorologist.
4: Well, it, it sounds like there's at least some good spin-off from a, a, a tornado. I, you mentioned the metric F5, an F5 tornado. Can you tell me uh, how that metric came to be and what it is? What does it measure?
6: Sure. Back in the 1970s, what is now the Nuclear Regulatory Agency got concerned about tornadoes and their possible damage to nuclear power plants. So they worked with Dr. Ted Fujita of the University of Chicago, who was one of the most extraordinary meteorologists of the 20th century. And Ted came up with a rating scale called the Fujita scale. Probably two-thirds of tornadoes are F0 or F1 intensity, meaning that they do about the same amount of damage as a weak hurricane. Then the F2s and F3s account for another third of tornadoes. Those can do a lot of damage. They'll take the roof off your house. They will make your house unlivable. But then it's the F4s and F5s that represent 2.5% of all tornadoes that disproportionately cause deaths and also tremendous damage such as the memorable tornado that destroyed the entire town of Greensburg, Kansas in 2007. But an F5 tornado is so intense that even if you're underground and in shelter, survival is not assured. For example, in the Greensburg tornado, you had the terribly tragic story of the tornado being so strong that it ripped up the metal guardrail from US Highway 54 threw it through the air. It went through a home's roof, then down through the floorboards and into the basement where it killed a woman.
4: There's obviously an enormous amount of energy that's concentrated in a small place when you have a tornado. Where does that energy come from and how does it get so concentrated? It sounds like it violates you know, the, the increase in entropy in nature to put all of it in one spot there. You know,
6: that's an excellent question, Seth. Let me try to answer it for you. Every cubic foot of air has at least some moisture in it. And those cubic feet of air get brought into what's called a supercell thunderstorm. And your F4 and F5 tornadoes all come from supercell thunderstorms. When the moisture in that air turns to rain, it gives off energy. And I've done some calculations that are in my book, Warnings, the True Story of How Science Tamed the Weather. And you'll find out that every minute it produces one and a half times as much energy as the Hiroshima atomic bomb. One little bitty gram of air when it turns to moisture, the moisture contained or the humidity contained in that air, isn't very much but when you turn it into trillions of grams being processed through that thunderstorm, the amount of energy is absolutely remarkable.
4: Is there anything that uh, we can think of that, in fact, is more energetic, another phenomenon here on the surface of the Earth?
6: In terms of geographic and total energy, a hurricane would have more energy. But in terms of concentrated energy, there's probably no more violent phenomenon than a supercell thunderstorm with an F5 tornado.
4: Let's look at hurricanes for a moment because uh, they're, they seem to be in the news more and more frequently. What's your assessment of the tracking of the 2011 Hurricane Irene that came up the east coast of the United
6: States? Absolutely superb. The forecasts of Irene were amazingly good four days out. You know, it used to be we were really happy. And when I say used to be, I'm talking 20 years ago. I'm not talking 50 years ago. 20 years ago, we were happy if we got landfall correct 24 hours in advance. In this case, we nailed it four days out. And if you go back and look at my blog, uh, you can go to my website, mikesmithenterprises.com, and click on uh, blog and, and track the storm. You can go back in time and do that. You'll see we were accurately warning Vermont, New Jersey, North Carolina of torrential rains and record flooding. We were saying that the main effects were going to be inland. The meteorological profession nailed that storm four days in advance. The improvement in the quality of storm warnings over the last 10 years is remarkable.
4: Mike Smith, thanks so much for talking with me.
6: My pleasure.
1: He's not inclement, but Mike Smith tracks weather that is, and he also writes about it in Warnings, the true story of how science tamed the weather.
4: Coming up, when most of us scramble for the nearest basement the guy you'll meet next grabs his camera his car keys and drives into the very center of the danger he follows his shot of adrenaline with a storm chaser wither his sanity
1: wither the weather on big picture science
7: a lot happens every day cut through some of the noise by listening to what's new with wired a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from WIRED. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
4: This is Big Picture Science and we're talking monster weather events.
3: We were in it. Right on. We were on the edge of the circulation.
4: That guy's having fun. He's in the middle of a tornado and he's snapping pictures like he's Sunday sightseeing at the Grand Canyon. Most of us have the good sense to flee when a huge storm breaks. But when the sirens wail, the wind reaches illegal highway speeds and sharp debris start flying, storm chaser George Karunas is in his element.
3: All kinds of natural phenomenon, actually. So tornadoes, hurricanes... Uh, avalanches, erupting volcanoes, lightning, hail storms, ocean storms, you name it. If, it, uh, if it's exploding or blowing or, or coming apart, I'm usually not too far away.
1: Okay, so you're a storm chaser. Now, what do you do when you catch one? <laughs> well, we don't really
3: catch them, but what I do is I document them. So photos, video, and years ago, I decided that the purpose of my life was to track down the most extreme forces of nature, document them, and then share what I have seen with as many people as possible. When I was a kid growing up, Jacques Cousteau and Indiana Jones were my two biggest heroes.
1: Now, I wonder if you could describe for us what the sky looks like when a funnel forms, when the tornado funnel forms.
3: A lot of people think that when a tornado forms, it looks like the movie Twister. And it actually doesn't. Twister didn't do it justice. It actually is more dramatic than what Hollywood has portrayed, believe it or not. When there's a a supercell thunderstorm, these storms can be twice the height of Mount Everest. So we're talking 60,000, 70,000 feet high sometime, rotating like a top, looking like the mothership from the movie Independence Day. You can see this rotation in the cloud, and it gets black as night, sometimes a dark green color from the hail. That's actually the light refracting off the hailstones that are suspended up inside this monstrous thunderstorm. And all that energy is concentrating and spinning down onto this one point, hopefully out in a farmer's field, not affecting anybody, but just to see that energy and feel that power and actually hear the sound of a tornado grinding away. It's just, it's awe-inspiring, sometimes frightening, but always spectacular.
1: How close have you gotten?
3: (laughs) There was one night just outside of Oklahoma City back, oh, maybe eight years ago, I can't even remember exactly, and a tornado touched down at night, and I knew it was close by. I could see on the radar that there was a tornado coming, but I couldn't see it with my own eyes until it was too late. The only clue that I had was the wind shifted dramatically and all of a sudden electrical transformers started exploding beside my car. Pieces of debris, like two by fours, bits of siding, garbage cans started flying through the air. It was like driving through a swarm of bees and I had to drive with the wind to reduce the impact force of all these pieces of debris hitting my car and hide behind a shopping mall as I saw this shadowy figure of the tornado basically pass almost right overhead. It took about 10 minutes for my leg to stop shaking from the adrenaline rush.
1: Was that the closest you came to any immediate danger to yourself?
3: I think so. Um, There's been times where I've had to literally dodge flying glowing lava bombs being chucked out of a volcano where you have to stop in your tracks, look up in the air, and see the trajectory that these glowing rocks are are taking when they're flying through the air towards you. That uh, certainly gets your attention. And and, uh, during Hurricane Katrina, which I did chase, I was in Gulfport, uh, Mississippi, right near the water, and the winds were just so strong I couldn't even stand up. Every little raindrop felt like a bullet hitting me in the face, and there were pieces of metal flying around like helicopter blades. It was like being in a blender for eight hours.
1: Now, how do you record this, um, both the the audio and, and the visual? Because your lenses would be obstructed by all the rain and, and mm-hmm. so forth. And then also you can blow out your, your, your microphone, um, oh, but just the with sound. With great difficulty.
3: Yeah. It is one of the most difficult things to do, to properly document these. I can't tell you how many cameras I have destroyed over the years. You can cover them, you can protect them as best you can, but... Water is insidious. It always gets in. It covers the lens. It gets in the microphone. And the worst is salt water. Just when you're in the storm surge, these waves from the hurricane that are pounding the shore and moving a quarter mile inland, flooding out the entire area. When you're standing waist deep in this, it's very easy to get salt water up inside your camera. So I've destroyed thousands of dollars of camera gear over the years.
1: Now, tornadoes and hurricanes get a lot of attention, of course, because of their enormous destructive power. But you also chase lightning storms. And and we do forget that these are not only brilliant storms, but they can be quite dangerous. How close have you come to a lightning strike?
3: There have been instances where I've felt the hair on the back of my arm actually start to stand up. And when you feel that, that's when you know that there's going to be a lightning strike very, very close by. And I've had them hit literally right across the street from me. And uh, if you ever feel that sensation, that's the positive charge in the ground actually traveling through you. And you're about to become a human lightning rod. And when you get 100 million volts at 30,000 amps that burns five times hotter than the surface of the sun, it's the kind of thing that, uh, well, you won't hear the one that kills you. So if you ever experience that sensation, get indoors as quickly as possible.
1: Is it true that lightning never strikes twice in the same place?
3: Completely untrue. Actually, the CN Tower here in Toronto, where I am, gets struck between 70 and 100 times a year.
1: And can you predict where lightning is going to strike? So if you're you're driving into a storm and you see the lightning storm on the horizon, are you able to pick out the objects that you think will be targets?
3: Not at all. As a matter of fact, it is so incredibly random that it's one of my biggest fears. I spend a lot of time in these storm environments, outside the car, standing next to a metal tripod in the rain with lots of lightning crashing around. And we have to determine how safe it is. We can never tell where the lightning is gonna hit, but we can determine how much lightning there is and, and how close it is. So when the threat is too high, we get back in the car, but you can never tell where that first one is going to strike.
1: You know, George, you mentioned that you filmed Hurricane Katrina, which leads to the question of when the storm for you becomes more than an awesome display of nature's power to become an instrument of deep human suffering and pain.
3: Indeed it is, and that's a challenge for me. Uh, The way I look at it is like this. These storms are forces of nature. They are natural phenomena. They only become natural disasters when they affect human populations. I'm there to document the phenomena, not necessarily the disaster. However, if that hurricane does end up hitting a community, I will be there to document it. And if there's someone who needs help and I'm there, that's the end of the chase. And actually, when the tornado hit Joplin, Missouri, and wiped out the town, we stopped the chase. We were right behind the tornado. We had to stop and lend assistance to about a, about a dozen or so 18-wheeler trucks that had flipped over on the highway. So when, when there's an emergency situation, we stop being storm chasers and become first responders. So there's always that humanitarian aspect that, uh, that kicks in when it's needed, but uh, I certainly don't like to see it. I prefer to see these storms affecting no one, but of course that's, that can't always be the case.
1: George Karunas, thank you very much for talking to us. My pleasure.
4: Faster than a speeding bullet is how George Karunas likes his gale force winds. A man with more daring than sense, with a remarkably steady camera hand, and a guy who likes a climatic ending. George Karunas is an explorer and storm chaser. You can find a link to his exploits on our website, bigpicturescience.org.
1: Well, chasing tornadoes and hurricanes may not be everyone's cup of tea. Some daredevils go for the real weather thrills.
4: Okay, team, that's our call to respond. Somewhere there's a do event, but we don't know where or the precise moisture content. Gary, instruments on. On. Do you have a do reading? I do, or I will. Keep at it. Molly, meanwhile, remind us of dew process. Do you have
1: it? I do. Dew point temperature, point at which air must be cooled for it to be saturated with water. Higher dew point temperature, higher the humidity. And incidentally, the curlier my hair.
5: And you do have a 1970s Elliot Gould dew right now. Hmm, well, this could be big. Go on, Molly, go on.
1: When air temperature and dew point are the same, well... Do you need me to continue?
5: I do not. We know what's next. Do up your galoshes, everyone. Let's do this. Remember the size of the water droplets on the grass back in 94? Gary, that's past due.
4: Focus on now. We need to get this on
5: video. We got to do due
4: diligence. Duty
5: calls. Do we have to? I'm scared. It's dewy out there. Do you or do you not want to be a dew chaser? Yeah, yeah, I do. Ever since water condensed on my soda can. I'm ready. Let's
4: do it. Goggles down, instruments on, it's do or
1: die. The grass, my my god, it's
5: sopping. And the laundry, it's damp. Totally damp. We'll have to rehang it tomorrow. Pull yourself together, man. Get this on video. I can't. The lens is covered
1: in tiny droplets. It won't focus. Seth, you've got to see this. Temperature and dew point are now the same. That means...
4: This is a Category 5 condensation event. We've gone way beyond
5: due. I I can't see. I wiped my glasses and they slowly missed over again. Seth,
1: Gary, look. I just told you I can't see. Drifting haphazardly towards us, partially obscuring our view. It's a fog bank. I've never
4: seen anything that I've not not seen through like
5: it before. Oh, the humidity! I can't breathe! It's everywhere.
1: We're surrounded by water vapor.
5: This is like that time I had a chest cold, and my brother turned the humidifier to high, and I couldn't find the door!
1: Stay calm. The fog wants you to
4: panic, to run in fear.
5: My galoshes have holes, my feet might be wet, and I can't see! I, I gotta get out of here.
1: Gary, no, not into the fog. Make sure the video camera's on. Where's the door? No more Vicks vapor rub. I can't find my way out. Seth, he's going due north. No, due south. Wait, no, due east. No use tracking him, Molly.
4: Gary's gone. He's gone until the sun burns off the fog, which should be in about 15 minutes.
5: I can't even see my hand, but I'm recording this. I'm recording it for all posterity. Where's the zoom button?
1: Speaking of the sun, severe storms are not limited to this planet. But, Seth, before we get to that, is there weather in space?
4: Well, it's not the kind of weather we're used to here on Earth. But all you need for weather is a little bit of an atmosphere, just some gas. And there is a little bit of gas in space.
1: Is it storms or winds or what form does it take? The weather in space takes the form of winds, mostly. Okay, that great big ball of hydrogen and helium in the sky that burns retinas while warming heart skins and planets does not always have a sunny disposition.
4: Watch out when the sun throws a fit. Solar storms comprise a whole slew of furious activity. You've got your basic explosion, solar flares. Then there are truly humongous bursts of searing winds called coronal mass ejections, which can interact with the Earth's magnetic field, even with some of our technology. So this is not a vacation hotspot. You no, know, the travel costs are high. But new scientific tools can help tip us off to these solar tantrums.
1: And a good thing, too, because they have consequences for our gusto-grabbing plugged-in electromagnetic lifestyles. That's why astrophysicist Jeffrey Scargle says there's nothing prodigal in studying this sun.
0: NASA's telescopes in orbit around the sun and around the Earth pointed at the sun measure activity and see bright flashes of light, measure magnetic field changes. Even gamma rays come from the sun. The the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope is observing gamma ray flares or storms on the sun. The, The most dramatic of these events are things called flares. They're sudden brightenings release of magnetic field energy in a very sudden thing that may last for only a few hours and send plasma into space. There's things called CMEs, or coronal mass ejections, where a lot of matter is thrown into space. And what I mean by plasma in this context is gas, ionized hot gas, not blood or the subject of blood transfusions. So just by looking at the sun, you can see these storms taking place. What's the
4: appeal of studying them? I mean, I can imagine that for... I don't know, a theoretical uh, physicist or something that there might be some interest in that, but does it tell us something interesting about how stars work to, to look at these sort of surface phenomena? Isn't that like trying to understand how people work by looking at their skin? <laughs>
0: Well, of course, we learn a lot about stars and stellar activity and comparing our sun with other stars. But in a practical sense, it's much more important than that because this activity on the sun does have effects on the Earth. And in fact, we're now in an era in terms of culture and technology where we're much more susceptible to these effects of the sun than we ever have been. This is because the solar storms can cause disturbances in communications, communication satellites, the cell phone communication for example, electric power systems can be disrupted. There's a famous example of a um, solar flare that caused a Canadian power grid to go down decades ago, but that could happen again. In fact, right now is a crucial time because the sun's activity is increasing. This 11-year solar cycle is on the way up toward what's called solar maximum. So in roughly a couple of years from now, there will be a lot more activity in the form of these flares, and we need to know what possible effects those are going to have on communications and power and other activities on the Earth. I occasionally hear people talking
4: about a coming solar superstorm in the year 2013. Is this a real weather report for the sun?
0: Uh, No, it's, it's a statistical prediction. It's like saying it may rain in the next few days. We know that the activity in the sun is building up to a maximum, and we know that, generally speaking, there's more flares and more geomagnetic storms and things that affect the Earth in this period of time. But it's a random thing, and we can never predict any one event. Can we defend ourselves
4: against this? Is there anything we might do to mitigate the effects of a solar storm, you know, put umbrellas over our communication satellites or something?
0: Well, that's a big question. That's a technology question. I think probably communication systems and power systems could put themselves in a safe mode in some sense if they know something is headed toward the Earth. And that is one exception to what I said about predictions. Because the effects take a while to come from the sun to the Earth, when we see a flare in terms of light output which arrives immediately, we can say a few days later there's going to be a geomagnetic storm, excess aurora borealis, uh, possible effects on communications, and get ready for that. So there is a warning time, a, a bit like a tsunami and an earthquake. Jeff, do we have any evidence that this sort of activity, solar
4: storms, occur on other stars? I mean, is this something that E.T. would have to worry about, too?
0: Yes, indeed. In fact, other stars are, generally speaking, more active than the sun. And that's no accident. It's not just luck that we're on a relatively quiet star, that our planet is around a relatively quiet star. That's probably why life originated on this planet, is it's not one of these more active stars. The change in brightness of the sun due to all this stuff is less than a tenth of a percent, in terms of random changes from day to day. So it's a very tiny overall effect. So think of it as the sun is a very quiet, benign environment to be in, hence that's why we're here in a sense. But now that we're exposing ourselves and sending these things out into space, we are suddenly different. We are now doing stuff that could be affected by this relatively low-level activity. Jeff Scargle, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. It was a lot of fun. Jeffrey
1: Scargle is a research astrophysicist in the Astrobiology and Space Science Division at NASA Ames Research Center. Coming up, everyone talks about the weather.
4: But climate change is doing something about it. How your local weather forecast may change as our planet heats up. And journalist Christian Parenti on the political chaos that may ensue. Wither the weather on Big Picture Science.
7: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
4: The weather changes every day, unless you live where we do.
5: And tomorrow's weather forecast for Northern California, same as today and yesterday. Fog in the morning with mid-morning clearings, sunny skies, and, well, you know the rest. Now let's go to Steve with the latest in windsurfing and sports.
1: Okay, we do get our share of nasty weather in the winter, by the way. But as a matter of definition, weather changes daily. But climate?
4: Is the weather on an extended time scale? Over thousands of years, it might shift, as it did when we entered a period of ice ages. And then when we moved into the warmer Holocene, which we're in now... But things are changing, and a new climate is in the offing. The average temperature worldwide is going up.
1: As is the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Weather, climate, they're different, but clearly intertwined, says climate scientist Ken Caldera.
4: Ken, people often confound and conflate weather and climate. They're often used interchangeably. What's the difference between weather and climate?
8: Climate is what you expect. Weather is what you get. So climate is the statistical average of weather, But the actual weather you get can fluctuate from day to day.
4: So I might say that the climate here is dry, but that doesn't mean it isn't going to rain today.
8: Well, I don't think it is going to rain today.
4: (laughs) Okay. Uh, But when we talk about climate change, are we also talking about weather change? It sounds like you can't get away from that.
8: Sure. If climate changes, the weather that you would expect also changes. So, for example, if it gets a few degrees warmer on average, then any typical day you'd expect to be a few degrees warmer. That also means that the hottest day you'd also expect to get a couple of degrees warmer.
4: We're hearing a lot about major storms and so forth. The weather seems to be changing, but, you know, that's kind of anecdotal. I I may be more sensitive to it because I read about climate change in the papers. Is this really true? Is severe weather really becoming
8: more common? Well, there's a lot of controversy about whether storms are really getting more common or more intense. We know that the average temperatures are increasing and so that heat waves are becoming more prevalent. And it appears that storms are becoming more intense, but it's thought that most of the increase in storm damage is really due to people building more, things in the way of storms rather than the storms themselves getting more common or more intense.
4: I presume that with more climate change, we will see, however, more frequent, serious storms, more intense storms, or will we just have lots more sort of weaker storms? I could imagine that might happen too.
8: The climate system is really complex, and so it's difficult to make these sort of predictions about rare events. The basic theory suggests that storms should not become more common, but that the storms that do occur should get more intense. The energy that drives storms comes from the evaporation of water. As the ocean becomes hotter and hotter, more and more water evaporates, and so there's more and more energy available to drive storms.
4: So that sounds like you might have the same number of hurricanes, for example, during the hurricane season, but you have a greater chance of having something that could be truly more destructive.
8: That's the prevailing theory at this time. I would say at this point the balance of evidence is that storms are getting more intense, but my assessment would be that in criminal law, you have to be able to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil law, it's enough to have a preponderance of the evidence. So I think at this point we can say that the preponderance of the evidence is that storms are getting more intense. But there's not yet the evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt.
4: So, so we win in a civil court. But let me rephrase that. Or we lose
8: in a civil court. Yeah.
4: Finally, Ken, to repeat the old chestnut, Everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about that. Have we finally, at the beginning of the 21st century, gotten to the point where we can do something about the weather? And I'm talking here about, you know, causing it to rain in places where it's not raining by seeding the clouds or doing something similar.
8: It's really hard to make it rain where there's no water. And people can push weather systems maybe over the edge. So if a cloud's right about to rain, maybe seeding that cloud can make it rain a little bit earlier. But a cloud that wasn't going to rain is not going to be turned into a rain cloud just by throwing a little bit of cloud seeding into it. So we might be able to toy a little bit around the margins, but I don't think that these kind of interventions are going to really make a big difference.
4: Well, that's control of the weather, but what about controlling the climate? What about geoengineering the climate so it's a little nicer wherever I happen to live?
8: Well, I'm not sure about controlling climate, but we can certainly influence climate. We know we're doing that already by introducing greenhouse gases. But another idea is to emulate what volcanic eruptions do. We know in 1991 there was a huge volcano known as Mount Pinatubo that put all kinds of aerosol particles high into the stratosphere, and these particles reflected sunlight back to space, and the Earth cooled by about a degree Fahrenheit the following year. And it's really not that much stuff. One single fire hose could introduce enough material into the stratosphere to offset all of the warming anticipated for this century. And so it is possible to cool the Earth through these kind of engineering approaches, but of course there are all sorts of risks associated with that. There's plenty of unknown unknowns waiting out there to bite us. Ken Caldera, thanks so
4: much for being with us today.
8: Thank you.
1: Ken Caldera is a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science, Department of Global Ecology. Climate change
4: involves the physical conditions on Earth, temperatures, the concentration of gases in the atmosphere,
1: rainfall or lack thereof, but it also affects the welfare of Earth's inhabitants. The climate system is famously complex, an interplay between atmosphere, ocean currents, ocean atmosphere, temperature, and so on. And that's why scientists need sophisticated computer models to track it. And in that way, the climate system mimics human behavior. Its outcome also the result of a complex interplay of culture, for example, politics and economics. And, says journalist Christian Parenti, the two complex systems are intertwined. And as the planet heats up, the consequences are unsettling.
4: Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence is Christian Parenti's book, The result of extensive research in the countries that lie in the equatorial tropics, that's the ribbon between the Tropic of Cancer and Capricorn, and for whom the consequences of a changing planet will be most dire. Increasing resource scarcity will create political and economic instability. In fact, he says, it already has.
1: Christian, let's begin where your book opens, at the devastating drought in Kenya and the death of Ekaru Lorman, who was killed in a cattle raid in that country. Did you witness his death?
2: I did not witness his death, but I came upon his body shortly after he had been killed.
1: And how was he killed, and, and then why was he killed?
2: He was killed because a neighboring tribe, the Pokot, had come down to raid the cattle of the Turkana people, of whom Akru was a, a, a member, and he was killed by uh, AK-47 rounds. And what happened was the Pokot came down out of the Karasuk Hills to raid the cattle that were clustered around a waterhole, which made them a, an attractive and appealing target. Because of the drought, the Turkana have had to concentrate their cattle around the banks of the Turkwell River and around the few remaining waterholes, so it makes them easy prey for their neighbors. So this had been a series of ongoing raids, day after day.
1: While it's difficult to reduce the complexity of what is going on in the area, you are making a connection, and it's the one that, you, that frames your book between Ekaru's death, civil unrest, and and climate change, And, and what is that connection?
2: Well, I try to look at all of the various causes behind his death. So at one level, it's climate change, because even though scientists don't link any single drought or extreme weather event, usually isn't blamed solely on climate change, but it fits the pattern. This extreme drought in the Horn of Africa fits the pattern that has been predicted for several decades by climate scientists. So that's one cause. It's creating scarcity on the ground. There's not enough food for the cattle, there's not enough water, there aren't enough cattle because the cattle are getting sick and dying. So to adapt to these conditions, people are turning to whatever means they have at hand, which happen to be cheap weapons left over from the Cold War. But then economic restructuring over the last 2 years as mandated by the World Bank and IMF has been pushed on developing economies, indebted developing economies such as Kenya has meant that the state is required to withdraw. So in the face of the drought, there aren't sufficient programs of assistance for people like Ekaru Lorman to fall back on, so they fall back on the guns.
1: Was Ekaru killed because he was trying to steal someone else's cattle, or was he trying to get access to water for his own animals?
2: He was guarding his own animals that were near a water hole and also sort of near the banks of the Turkwell River. And so he was defending his cattle, and the, the pokot were the ones who were on the offensive.
1: Now, there's a crippling drought in Kenya right now. I wonder if you could describe the landscape as you stood there near the spot where Ekaru was killed. What, what does it look like?
2: It looks a little bit like Nevada, maybe. I believe that before the drought, it would not have looked like that, but the color scheme is... You know, desert. It's a semi-arid region that is now badly desiccated, and um, there are also sort of very dramatic, sudden rock formations that come up out of the the plains. But you know, one of the really disturbing features is that the acacia trees and all of the shrubs are just entirely bleached out and dead. And so, they look. A lot of these trees look like standing driftwood. They have a kind of like grayish blue sheen to them baking in the sun for so long. But
1: there's some water there, because that's where Ekaru was taking his, his herd. And the water comes from the glaciers on Mount Kenya. Is that right?
2: Right. Well, the, the water comes down out of the mountains around Mount Kenya, yes, and on the, off of the glaciers of Mount Kenya, and also out of the, the mountain on the border with Uganda. And it is a thin, muddy river, rather swift, running through what, due to the drought, is essentially a desert.
1: Now, Christian, there's always been famine, and um, Kenya is not new to this phenomenon. And in fact, in 1997, the Kenyan government declared a state of national disaster due to famine. So how have drought patterns changed and the resulting famine across the region in the time since then?
2: The droughts in Kenya seem to be coming more quickly. The meteorologists in Kenya that I spoke with and the farmers and pastoralists say that they used to expect drought once every 10 or 7 years and that it has, over the last 30, 40 years, drought cycle has accelerated. So they've had drought out of you know, one out of every two, one out of every three years in much of Kenya. And Kenya has very locally variegated weather patterns. An interesting thing that's going on is that actually the overall level of precipitation in Kenya has been going up over thirty years. But the pattern of the rainfall is that it's coming down all at once in these sudden deluges which lead to flash flooding, which don't help the situation of the drought at all and even exacerbated it by washing away topsoil.
1: We spoke with a climate scientist earlier in the show, Ken Caldera, and he takes a characteristically cautious scientific stance on whether we are actually witnessing more frequent or more extreme weather events by saying that, in theory, this is what is supposed to happen. But it sounds like you're taking the position that this is happening now, and, and not only that, that we are seeing civil unrest because of it.
2: Yes. I mean, I'm not a scientist, so I defer to scientists on on those debates. But it seems pretty clear that there's an increase in extreme weather in many parts of the planet. And my main argument is about trying to unpack exactly how that translates into increased political and social violence. I mean, one could argue endlessly about the, the larger cycles of the planet, whether or not this set of droughts is caused by anthropocentric climate change or would have been happening anyway. But I think overall, if we, you know, science is pretty clear that the general pattern worldwide is that we are forcing changes in the climate due to our burning of fossil fuels.
1: Now, why is it that the violence or the chaos, as your book titles it, more likely in the area between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, these equatorial regions, why is that the area you're focused on?
2: That's the region where you find more civil war, state failure. But the, what it means is that there are large populations in the global south who live close to the land, and they have very little margin of error. In a more in- industrialized economy, there's more margin of error economically, so you know you, there's very bad droughts and flooding in Australia. But the economy is industrialized and developed and the state functions. And so there are resources for people to fall back on. In a place like Kenya, for a, a pastoralist like, like Ekaru, they live at the mercy of the immediate climatic conditions around them.
1: Now, Kristen, you talked to farmers in India. You talked to them one-on-one. What did they say about what was happening with the weather? What was their experience? And, and were they aware of climate change per se?
2: They were very aware that there was less rain and that their region was becoming drier and drier they were not aware of climate change they did not uh, they did not know about the relationship between co2 and temperatures uh, on the earth's surface their theory of why their local environment was falling apart was based on Deforestation, and because it was very empirical. I mean, this was their experience. There used to be 30 years ago, the rains were more regular, the rivers were healthier, and there were more trees. And so that's what they could see. They could see some immediate empirical cause and effect between cutting down trees and there being less moisture in the environment. And they're, they're correct to some extent. I mean, that is part one of the dynamics locally, but that's actually not the driving force. I mean, the driving force is the disruption of the monsoon, which is linked to climate change at a global scale.
1: I wonder if you're able to take your analysis and some of your definitions and apply them to areas of the world outside the band that you focus on, the ribbon around the central midsection of the planet. And would you consider that those... People who were forced to leave New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, or even who lost businesses on the East Coast during Hurricane Irene, would they be also considered victims of climate change? And would they be considered climate refugees?
2: I would consider them climate refugees. Yes, I mean, my mother lives in Vermont. I'm from Vermont, and. some people actually moved up after Hurricane Katrina. They, they sold their house and bought a house in Saxons River, Vermont, and, uh, they, and they, they explicitly said, you know, we just can't, we can't handle these hurricanes anymore. We're getting out of there. And uh, we realized, wow, these people are climate refugees. They don't look like refugees in the sense that they're not waiting in some food line sleeping under a blue UN tarp, but, you know, they're being pushed out in part by climate change.
1: Well, finally, Christian, I wonder if you could provide some hope in this grim picture that you've portrayed here. And I wonder where the solutions are and where where you do see hope.
2: Well, I think that, you know, we have to work on adapting to the amount of climate change we're locked in for. But that the most immediate thing is we have to mitigate the problem. We have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by switching from fossil fuels such as coal and oil to energy sources such as wind and solar. And that transition is underway. In China, the clean tech sector is growing by leaps and bounds. And so too in various European economies like Portugal and Germany. I think there needs to be a recognition that there should be a fund internationally that helps transfer technology and capital from the north to the south on a global scale. I mean, the good news is this transformation is underway. The U.S. is one of the, one of the places where we're dragging our feet on this. But the transformation away from fossil fuels is underway. The problem is it's just not happening fast enough.
1: Christian Parenti, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you very much for having me on the show.
4: Christian Parenti is contributing editor of The Nation, visiting scholar at the City University of New York, and author of Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change, and the New Geography of Violence. Well, Molly, you don't usually think of weather as affecting politics this way.
1: Yeah, Christian's really painted a complex portrait of all the connections that begin with the CO2 that we put in the atmosphere, the weather forecasts that we hear on the radio, and the economics and the politics that result somewhere down the line. And that's it for our show. Hey, Seth, it's actually kind of breezy in here. Is there a window open or something? Well,
4: there, there must be somewhere. I, I don't see it, but it's...
1: Okay. Thanks to our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance. Whoa, it's getting pretty windy. And volunteer, Jay Weiler.
4: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, Distant Sun Software, and the SETI Institute. And thanks also to our listeners. Wow, your turn, Molly. What? Uh, it's it's your
1: turn. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through a link on our website. If you're a podcast listener, oh, hey, there goes my
4: chair, and prefer over-the-air radio, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Is this all coming from that window? I think my grip is slipping. We've been saying that for years. You've been listening to Wither the Weather.
1: Yeah.